In my dreams you're blowing me some kisses That's one of my favorite things to do You and I could go down in history Welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I am Mario Lanza, and I am your host in our journey through the movies out there that just maybe need a little more love in the world. Our movie today is one that could not apply to that definition more. This is one of these movies that I actually have a long history of recommending this movie. And what's shocking about this one in particular is that I've gone almost 45 episodes of Staff Picks without doing this movie, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. This is one, again, um, I have so much to say about this. I've, I've, I've said so many things about this in the past. So again, this is, this is right up my alley. This is, Staff Picks was made for this movie. And again, it's shocking that this was not my first episode if you, uh, know my history. Um, my guest today is a, let's see, stand-up comedian. He's a improv guy. He writes, uh, for the Houston Press. He's a, uh, just a all-around renaissance comedy guy and podcaster based out of Houston. Uh, big fan of this guy. In fact, he is uh, my unofficial uh, editor and uh, engineer on this show. He has helped me behind the scenes on a lot of stuff. So finally, welcome to being in front of the microphone. Welcome, Vic Shetty. Oh, my God. Mario, it is a pleasure to be here, and I want to warn our listeners to get out of here. You don't want no part of this shit. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of embarrassing that I haven't had Vic on the show because, as I said, he has been my engineer and has recorded a lot of these podcasts. He's helped me out when I have technical issues. He has really been a part, if you've been listening to the show, he's been a part of at least 10 out of the 30 episodes. So <laughs> welcome to people knowing who you are. Welcome to uh, Cheers, Vic. Yes, well, this is – well, it's been so great, Mario. The, the fact that we got to be friends after you did my podcast on Hail Satire, we got to talk about your comedy influences. The fact that we've become, like, text buddies, Facebook buddies eh, – is such a great thrill um i know i when you were talking about the title for the podcast i was pitching ideas to you so i'm always throwing darts at the mario lanza board and sometimes they stick hey and right back at you vic is one of the funniest guys i know i love i will say right now i love your radio voice <laughs> Vic has one one of the all time great podcast voices, and then I told him this before, but it, it's because he sounds like the movie phone guy. Like everything is very exciting, and I'm announcing it to you. So I'm very excited that I think that's just how you talk, Vic. Well, that's big praise coming from the guy who discovered Jay Fisher, who I think is the the benchmark for a good uh, podcast voice. <laughs> yeah. So so why don't you tell people uh, what you do, kind of your background? I know I kind of short sold you there. Uh, what else? What are you known for? I know you mentioned Hale Satire. Explain to people mm -hmm. what that is. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm a Renaissance man, Mario. Uh, not gonna, not gonna uh, sugarcoat this one here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, I have been uh, into comedy since I was a fetus. Uh, uh, I a big, a big comedy historian, if I could be. Um, I started doing the podcast Hail Satire when I was in college. It started off as a like terrestrial radio show at my college. Um, I got approached to do this thing by uh, the fledgling uh, uh, student organization saying we need more people. And I said, I could do a comedy show. I don't know anything about music. 
And so uh, I just use that as an excuse to interview my favorite people. I had, like, the college name behind me, so I just started cold emailing everybody. And so, like, when I was 19, 18, I'm interviewing, like, Simpsons writers and famous stand-ups, people like uh, original SNL writers. My very first interview was Mike Scully, who was the showrunner on The Simpsons for many years. Um, and so that was, like, the great excuse. And that's how I got into podcasting, was doing it for, like, nobody. Uh, we had, like, seven listeners on you know saturday night at midnight um and then i slowly learned how to uh you know build my own equipment uh, uh you know i bought my own little i put my together my own little studio and uh, uh over the years i've i've expanded what hail satire does um so uh, i do a, a regular show called your comedy education and mario was one of the very first people to do that where we talk to uh, famous uh, internet uh, writers and uh, talk about their influences um, we've done, I think, like over 200 interviews, and uh, uh, I also do the Daily Show Weekly, which is um, – I know Mario will find this contentious, but uh, <laughs> I think Jon Stewart's Daily Show is one of the best shows of all time. And so me and a buddy are going back through the entire 16-year run and watching it week by week uh, and comparing it to the uh, interesting political reality that's happening now. Um, and uh, yeah, so Hail Satire has been a big part of uh, my life recently, but uh, I started as a playwright. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I do improv and stand up and, uh, I just, any excuse to talk about comedy is a joy. And so, uh, Mario is one of the guys who knows his history deeper than even I. And so it's just fun to get to rap back and forth. I'm just, enough? Yeah. I'm just older than you. That's the only extent to which I know comedy history. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because yeah, uh, Vic is one of these guys who's a lot like me and that's what I kind of consider myself a comedy historian. Cause I've really done nothing in my life other than just try to figure out how to be funny, like trick, figure out what makes people funny and why and like see how people do it in different forms and like i've studied this my whole life i have i have hundreds of hours of like old david letterman audio tapes and jay leno stuff from the 80s where i would just record them on an audio tape and just listen to them over and over so vic kind of does the same stuff that i do and i i just wouldn't say that you had mentioned it that he has people on his show that you know talk about their comedy influences and he told me a while back he wanted me to go on his show and to this day that is the most interesting podcast i've ever been a part of oh nice did i ever tell you how long i spent researching that podcast vic before i went on there no but i know we did four hours so i imagine uh you know a few more than that yeah yeah it's just one of those things that uh, if somebody asks you who are your comedy influences what makes you what made you the way you are like that's a deep question you don't normally get asked on podcasts so i we talked about this and i like i said yeah it was like a four-hour show <laughs> So if anybody wants to listen to an interesting uh, back history on how I became the odd person that I am or how Vic became the, the odd person he is, you should listen to this Hail Satire show. That was, like I said, probably the most interesting interview I've ever done. Well, that's terrific because I've interviewed a lot of people that have made comedy, uh, but very few, even like big names like Bo Burnham and Nick Offerman and Will Forte, these guys do comedy, but I don't know how much they are students of comedy. So uh, uh, I think Mario was a really fun guest because he can literally pull out, uh, you know, decades and decades of references, things so arcane, comics you've never heard of. And that's why that show is so much fun. And speaking of Arcane, how about our movie today, <laughs> Walk Hard, which, of course, was a huge smash hit when it came out, right? Well, it, you know, all by all intents and purposes, Mario, it should have been. It came out in 2007. It was coming off the summer of Apatow, knocked up and super bad. Uh, same team, essentially, behind the camera, uh, knocked one-two in the summer, the biggest movies of that year. 
And Walk Hard is, uh, so, for whatever reason, dumped in December. So all signs pointed to it being a trilogy of Apatow, and yet this one nobody saw, and I think it cost more than those other movies, so uh, it added up to a goose egg on the bottom line. Yeah, again, just as a notorious, maybe not a notorious, like, like not one of the all-time great flops, but this was an absolute flop. It developed no audience whatsoever. I, I didn't see it in the theater. Did you see it in the theater, Vic? You know, Mario, I'm proud to say, uh, I don't have many things in my life that I can be proud of, but uh, Walk Hard is the second movie that I snuck into in theaters, my second rated R movie um, uh, after Superbad, which was a couple months beforehand. But yes, I saw Walk Hard in the cold December months with a buddy of mine. I think I must have been 14. <laughs> I, I was not as lucky as you. I did not sneak into it. Of course, I was also 33 at the time. I was significantly <laughs> older than you. But, yeah, it didn't... Sneak like, your child in, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. But I didn't uh, really... This movie didn't call to me when I saw it in the ads, because I'm not really a Judd Apatow fan. I know mm -hmm. Vic and I could talk for an hour about if Apatow's good or not, but... And that's surprising to me. I'd love to know why. I just don't like... I don't know. I didn't like Super Bad. It didn't really call to me. I didn't really like Knocked Up. Like, I like parts of them, but they don't... It doesn't strike me that I don't think his reputation is where it should be. I, I always thought he got way more credit for being funnier than his stuff actually is. That's, I mean, that's the best way I could say. Although I will say, flat out, I think Freaks and Geeks was like one of the greatest TV shows ever. So I will give him full credit on that one. Well, I mean, he's just so influential, uh, whether or not you like his specific style. You can't deny that he, I, I think, essentially owned comedy in the 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, there's no disputing that. That's the thing. He owned comedy. Maybe that's why I didn't like it, because I didn't think his stuff was that outstanding. Like, I thought a lot of them were pretty good, but it was so weird that he was, like, being held up there like the Farrelly brothers or the Zucker brothers. And I'm like, I don't really think it's the same level of quality. So I, that's maybe that's where I kind of my dissonance comes in. And that's so interesting because I'm coming off of the idea that um, you know the mainstream comedies of the 90s were Adam Sandler movies and the Farley Brothers. And I feel like uh, uh, they were much wackier and sillier and maybe uh, uh, more family friendly. Uh, but when you get to, you know, the rated R comedy days, yeah, Apatow uh, uses the, the form of improvisation a lot more uh, uh, candidly and frequently in his films. Of course, that was what I would like to go into. So uh, that really spoke to me. And it really changed the way movies look, too. They're a lot simpler in the Apatow era just because it necessitates that we do, you know, 17 versions of the same shot and we pick the funniest gag. Okay. Now, now we could do a whole hour of a show on Apatow. We, in the interest of moving along, I will say again, I am, I am not the biggest Apatow fan, which is why I didn't, I wasn't called to this movie when I saw it in the uh, previews and stuff. I'm like, well, that looks kind of cute. You know, John C. Riley isn't really known for headlining comedies really at that point. Jenna Fisher was in there like she was, you know, like a second tier TV actress. She wasn't really known for leading movies. Right. And I'm like, yeah, it's not really something I'm that interested in. And I eventually came around on this movie and saw it. I rented it on DVD or something mm -hmm. and uh, i'm going to give a little back history to people here that i used to have a uh, web page called uh 365 movies that deserve more love that was a project mm -hmm. i worked on a couple years ago and it was really the precursor to this podcast and i had a rule in that stuff had to be at least 10 years old before i would even consider it being underrated because you can't mm -hmm. really develop a reputation walk hard is the one movie i had on that list that was less than 10 years old <laughs> so there wow. you go. So right off the bat, like uh, this movie, I watched it. I'm like, that is the funniest movie I've seen in like 10, 15 years. There, there are so many jokes in this movie and they come so fast. Like my notes for this episode are insane mm -hmm. how fast I was writing stuff down and I couldn't I'd, like keep pausing and stuff. 
But again, like I said, I made my list in 2012, this website of all these movies that were underrated, and they had to be 10 years old. And the only one on there is I said, walk hard. And I said, I have never seen a movie that has future cult classic written on it more than walk hard. I'm like, I will stake my entire reputation as a comedian, comedy writer, comedy fan, that this movie is going to be beloved in 20 years. And so I've, I've staked like so much of my reputation on this specific movie over the years. Mm-hmm. Well, that shows the wisdom of Mario Lanza. Well, now it's officially made it past 10 years, so we can all revel in the idea that this thing deserves to be a cult classic. But I would make the argument that this thing should have been a mainstream hit. Uh, we were in the era when those schlocky uh, date movie, scary movie ripoffs were happening everywhere. Parody was very much on the mind of, uh, you know, uh, 2007 Dick. So I, I'm surprised this thing did not hit. I think it has to be because it, it was released four days before Christmas. Nobody was thinking people were wanting to go like Sweeney Todd or something like that, a musical. But this thing is so heartwarming and wholesome uh, for, uh, you know, a raunchy R-rated comedy. Um, I, I just before it's time and yet uh, it is timeless. Well, I think I can answer probably why it flopped with this simple question to you. Vic, how is the funniest movie of the 2000s a parody of Johnny Cash? <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, you know, Cash does not scream comedy outside of his one appearance on The Simpsons as a talking coyote. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, the, the premise is unorthodox, and yet it is so perfect. How had this not been touched up till now? A parody of biopics. It's It's been there since the dawn of film. Yeah, and again, I just one of those things, I just don't think there was a huge market for that. People didn't think that could be funny. Like, you know, I've seen Ray, I've seen, you know, Walk the Line, and they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, it'll be cute, and maybe Apatow might throw some R-rated jokes in there, but like, that does not even begin to comprehend, or to, to describe what this movie is and how funny this movie is. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's su- a, such a full version of the concept, too, because it parodies all these different specific biopics. you got a little bit of the Doors movie in there. you got the Elvis biopic. You have um, uh, so many uh, uh, different uh, eras to focus on. And this is a cradle-to-grave movie. We're, we're going from the mid-40s to 2007 when Dewey Cox, uh, spoiler alert, dies on stage after his final performance. Oh, you gave um, it away. You gave it away. <laughs> oh, no. Did we do – spoiler alert. I will give the ultimate compliment here. This is a story I was, I, I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell this one, but I will share it and I'll see if I can get permission later. But I have a good friend, one of my best friends, Matt Carter, who's been on two episodes of Staff Picks. And he and I are always sharing movies back and forth. And I gave him Walk Hard. I'm like, you got to watch this movie. This is like the funniest movie I've seen in a decade. And so he watched it and he loved it he he and his wife watched it and they loved it and he ran home to show his dad he always shows movies to his dad because his dad like was worked in entertainment and stuff mm-hmm. and the story is going to take a dark turn Vic. so watch out here so matt rushes to his dad's house and his dad has had a heart attack his dad died oh my god <laughs> so so matt was holding walk hard my copy of walk hard as he walks in and sees his dad dead on the kitchen and then he's like well you, you know, when you call 911, people don't realize that they don't come right away. Like, if the body is, like, de- dead and there's no crime scene, like, they'll they might take their time to come there to, you know, pick everything up. Mm-hmm. So it was basically him and his wife sitting at home, and they had nothing to do, and they're like, well, let's watch Walk Hard again. <laughs> oh, what a disaster. I apologize. I apologize, Matt, that I'm telling this story, but I think he'd get a kick out of it, that he's like, you know, Mario, I love this movie because it kept our spirits up in the worst day of my life. I'm laughing my ass off at Walk Hard while my dad is dead 20 feet away on the floor. So. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, and, you know, this is all. This is a father-son movie at its heart. Uh, uh, thankfully, uh, uh, his paw was not cut in half with a machete. Yeah. 
<laughs> anyway, that's one of the all-time great stories. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, that is the power of this movie, and I hope that they were to put they will were to put that quote up on the poster someday when they re-release this. Like it's the my dad had died, and this is the movie that kept my spirits up. Mm-hmm. Well, it's about making good despite the death in your life. Poor Dewey loses everybody he's ever cared for, with the exception of maybe his bandmates and his, his second wife. Uh, uh, everything Dewey touches turns to shit, and yet it was uh, a beautiful ride, as they say. Yeah, and at the end, he even is allowed to is able to smell the shit. So it's like it does come full circle. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> Okay, let's let's walk people through this movie. And again, we're going to have the hardest time getting through this one without giggling because but there... we will walk hard. <laughs> yes, we we will walk as hard as possible here. But again, this movie is so dense with jokes. It just is on a whole different level than any other movie of its era. Is there anything you can think of in that era you'd even put kind of close to this in just the style? There, there is nothing that really hits this because this is different for me than the typical Apatow fair, which is a lot of lino-rama. Um, I think, uh, maybe you can say Anchorman gets into one period as deeply, but Walk Hard gets into debatably six different period pieces. I mean, it's, each one is like a dense little one-act play. Yeah, there's, there's a laugh every few seconds, and it works for me as uh, pretty much a straight-on drama. You ha- it's, it was a masterstroke to cast John C. Riley in this role because, yeah, he was Oscar nominated for Chicago, a musical film where he plays kind of a sad sap. Here we're using that to a benefit. I mean, this is these are Oscar caliber performances without my tongue too in my cheek. <laughs> now, OK, I'll put you on the spot here, Vic. Are you ready for a pop quiz question? Sure. What would you say maybe the three funniest movies since 2000? Since 2000, this is, uh, you know, the bench is light. I think uh, comedy has really steered away from the big screen. Uh, things have changed. You know, comedy movies have to play overseas now, so it means a lot more physical comedy and a lot less uh, dense satire. Um, I would say Walk Hard is on that list. Um, I would say uh, uh, if we're going like indie movies, I think uh, another staff pick's favorite, uh, Little Miss Sunshine's really terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think a lot of what Seth Rogen has done recently, I know that kind of sounds uh, very, uh, w- what a hot take, but Sausage Party is a parody of Pixar films. That's difficult to pull off, and they needed the money to do it. Uh, ditto This is the End, that is you know, a full-on apocalypse. It's hard to greenlight a movie where we kill a bunch of celebrities playing themselves. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, geez, uh, honestly, I'm going to say this without pandering. I think very highly of Jake Kasdan, the director of Walk Hard's movie right before this, uh, 2006, the TV set. There's no reason that movie should work. It's just a really, uh, uh biting inside the, you know, inside the belt, uh, Hollywood satire about, you know, uh, what happens when you compromise uh, in the development of a TV show. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, you know, comedies are, uh, fewer and farther between. I think a lot of the stuff that plays is, uh, 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 very broad and the good, the couple of good ones that have trickled out typically get sequeled to death and really lose their magic. I'm looking at you, The Hangover. (laughs) You know, what's funny is what I just heard as you were saying that was, wow, Mario needs to watch the TV set and Mario needs to watch Sausage Party because I've never seen those. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, right back at you, Mario. Uh, best comedies since uh, the year uh, 2000. And I think there's one that we're both thinking of, and I-, I was neglecting to say it. Yeah, I will say it, because Vic and I have already worked out what his second appearance on Staff Picks is going to be. So I will flat out say we both think Borat is one of the funniest comedies mm-hmm. of all time. Uh, 
It's perfect. Uh, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen does something that no movie's ever done. This takes improv uh, to the next level. Uh, uh, yeah, Borat is a masterclass. It's almost a religious experience. It's so complete. Yeah, again, we'll save this for the podcast, but it's such a shame what has happened to that movie's reputation over the years. Mm -hmm. And it's still just as funny as it's ever been. I mean, it's, again, my daughter doesn't even like comedies. I introduce her to movies all the time. She doesn't mm -hmm. like comedies, but she's like, but Borat is different. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, and I'll debate that it was a victim of its own cultural success. The things people remember for that movie are, uh, yes, my wife, uh, which is, is so silly. It's really a very deep and telling satire about uh, uh, the American relationship with immigrants. Uh, uh, and I do not think it's as black and white as uh, people on both sides of the aisle will uh, will attest to. Borat is a very complex and real picture. Um, yeah, uh, improv in uh, film is such a... You could do a whole podcast on that. Uh, uh, from the Christopher Guest movies to uh, Borat uh, to the Judd Apatow uh, filmography... Um, uh, the improv is so much fun to see, and yet a walk hard itself doesn't have that much improv in it, Mario. There's a couple of Lionel Ramas, but this is a very much a scripted film, and it's like one of those one. It reminds me of the old Mel Brooks movies. Um, it feels like this is a script where a lot of people wanted to contribute. This is kind of a gangbang script. Yeah, it seems like he wrote it for a lot of his friends, and you can see this movie is just cameo heavy. It's just all over the place. All these whoever the big famous comedians were at the day, and then also Justin Long. <laughs> he's, he's in there too. <laughs> By the way, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I will say my three favorite funniest movies of the 2000s, Walk Hard and Borat. And if I have to give a third one, I'm going to say right now either Bad Santa or Horrible Bosses are the ones I really laughed at. That is sh that's shocking to me. I got to give Horrible Bosses a, a round two. I didn't think much of it at the time, and I haven't seen Bad Santa. That's that's on me. Uh, I, I, maybe Batter Santa turned me off all those years later. Yeah, don't see the second one. Anyway, okay, we're way off topic here. We've gone way off the rails here. Okay, You're welcome. Thank, thank you, Vic. All right, so we're going to walk through Walk Hard for you as best as we can, and we'll try to get as many of the jokes in there as we can. But again, a lot of it is, is you just have to experience this movie. There's no way we can possibly do it justice because, again, it's so dense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those ones that I really want people to see before we, we dive into it because you only get one shot at this. And the amount of surprises in this movie, uh, you know, taking left turns where you do not expect, uh, uh, it's a, a much higher a percentage than even the typical screenplay. As somebody who is writing screenplays and plays, I can appreciate the amount of twists and turns that still adhere to the biopic tropes. It's so complicated and just delicious. Yeah, and speaking of surprises, I have never seen another movie where Jack Black plays Paul McCartney. Sir Paul McCartney. <laughs> Man, that scene has more caliber in it. A lot of firepower there. You got Paul Rudd as John Lennon, Jack Black as a big fat cunt Paul McCartney. You got Justin Long as Harrison, Jason Schwartzman as Ringo Starr, and then John C. Riley, Matt Besser, Chris Parnell, Tim Meadows. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, this whole movie is that, guys, and I use that phrase a lot. Just the, the people you remember as being funny, you might not remember their names, but, like, I was such a fan of Chris Parnell on SNL. I was such a fan of Tim Meadows. And these guys are all showing up in this movie, and all these, again, okay, let's let's go into this. You ready? Yeah, sure. Okay, so Walk Hard is the story of a singer named Dewey Cox, and this is basically his biopic, his entire life. And the movie starts with him as an old man. He's like at a like a, a end-of-his-life concert, a benefit, a Lifetime Achievement Award concert, and... He's about to go on stage, and, you know, they're ready for him. They're like, Mr. Cox, please come on stage, and, and uh, he's, he's not ready to perform yet, and this is where his uh, drummer... Dewey needs to think about his entire life before he plays. <laughs> yes, right from the back, right from the start, we're making fun of the tropes of these biopics, where his drummer's like, 
Dewey needs to think about his entire life before he goes out and performs. And so, yeah. we go back to oh, It's a mockery of framing devices, for God's sake. In the first one, we're already deconstructing film, uh, these stupid framing devices that exist in every life story. Uh, uh, I love that. From from the jump, you know what this movie's going to be. It's a parody of everything you've seen in movies. <laughs> yeah, so we cut back. I am already laughing because I know which scene we're about to talk about here. We go, <laughs> we go to Alabama, 1946, and it's this farm setting, and I'm assuming this is very much like Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash story, that it was probably on a farm and he had a brother or something like that. Indeed, I have a brother, and in the Johnny Cash story, his brother drowns. Very sad. <laughs> okay, so so in this book, we have to have a tragic backstory for the singer. So we cut to this farm, and there's two brothers here. You got Dewey Cox, and you got his little brother Nate. And mm -hmm. right from the start, we learn that Nate is this perfect child. He's like a piano prodigy, and he's going to be an astronaut and a professional athlete. Is there anything else that I'm missing? I do believe he wants to be the president. The great thing about life and being young is there's so much time to do great things. Yeah, so, so right from the start, we know this other brother is going to die. And the movie doesn't even doesn't even fart around with it. They're just flat out telling you. And the kid's like, uh, ain't nothing horrible going to happen to me today. He's like, there's nothing, I want, there's, there's nothing I won't do with this long, long life of mine. <laughs> and you also set up that Pa thinks the world of Nate saying, hey, Nate, you can't practice all day. You're already perfect. Yeah. And so we cut to this montage. You know something bad is going to happen to Nate because he's the perfect child. And and the, we do the, all these activities. And I guess as a comedy writer, this is the kind of stuff that warms my heart. Just So he and his brother are out playing with rattlesnakes. <laughs> like He's getting chased by a bull. And at one point, they're like playing horse with a uh, we're playing, tractor. Playing chicken, yeah, with a tractor and a horse. And then they're like blowtorching things with this giant blowtorch. Mm -hmm. All of those things completely innocent. No harm uh, befalls any of them. It's not until we get the machetes out to have a good old-fashioned machete fight do things take a sour turn. Yeah. And <laughs> there's no way I can get through this scene without cracking up. Where, where the, yeah, the brothers decide we're in a barn. We're going to have a machete fight because apparently Pa has a collection of razor-sharp machetes he leaves sitting around. <laughs> so and yet they are so they are so dull-looking. They're rusty, for God's sakes. <laughs> Uh, that's his collection. <laughs> <laughs> that's a shitty collection, Dad. I'll just say it, it right is. now. <laughs> Look, I mean, uh, what is this, Mario, but a verbal machete fight between you and I? <laughs> Who's getting cut in half? <laughs> I thought we were working together. I thought this was a collaboration. Are you turning on me? Do you yield, sir? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the two brothers are just playing a little machete fight as if they're sword fighting, and in the uh, in the excitement of the action, Dewey accidentally kills his his perfect brother although it's not quite a killing as you would think you would see in a normal movie like this no he slices him in half where the top half slides off and lands on the ground and so Dewey accidentally halves his brother which one of my all-time favorite verbs in a comedy movie he halved him I've been halved and uh, as the doctor soon points out this is a particularly bad case of the top half of his body being separated from the bottom half of his body <laughs> it's a particularly bad case of being cut in half <laughs> I was not able to reattach the top part to the bottom part speak English doc we ain't scientists <laughs> And literally, this is the first five minutes of the movie, so yes! <laughs> I have so many notes just in the first five minutes of this movie. I'm like, how can I hit every one of these little punchlines? But yeah, yeah, so Nate has been cut in half, and the father is horrified because Dewey killed his perfect brother. And uh, this is where uh, the dad, of course, hates Dewey. He's like, you killed your perfect brother. He's like, the wrong kid died. And the wrong kid died. 
You ain't half the boy that the top half of Nate was. I'm less than a quarter of the boy Nate was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a good lesson for screenwriters out there. If you want to make your story interesting, you got to hook the reader in the first five pages. Kill somebody with a machete on page three, damn it. That's a movie. So not only is Dewey's life ruined, he has accidentally killed his brother, but now he suddenly loses his sense of smell, which is like <laughs> the side effect of a trauma. Completely unrelated. <laughs> yes, completely. But again, for people who might not know, this is from the movie Ray, right? Where there's a tragic accident, Ray loses his eyesight or something. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I do believe so. And I think there was another rock star. Uh, IMDb has this trivia, but uh, there was another rock star that actually did lose his sense of smell after a car accident. Okay, so so anyway, Dewey is now handicapped because he loves music, but he can't smell, which is apparently supposed to somehow relate. But we just don't, we just just accept that this is going to be his handicap he lives with. So, Dewey... well, Mario, I want you to quickly power rank the five senses. What's the most important? What's the least important? And why is it smell? Oh gosh. <laughs> Well, I I will give a serious answer to this. Like sense memory, like I've studied psychology, sense mm. memory through smells is is stronger than any other sense, and I don't think people realize that. If you really, if you smell something, let's like something your mom cooked when you were a kid, or like cookies, or something that was in like your kindergarten class, you will be taken right to it immediately, and that's why smell is actually the most underrated scent. Wow, this this is news to me. I absolutely would go. You got to go. Uh, probably sight then sound. Then I guess touch. If I lost my hands, I'd be in trouble. And then uh, uh, what? Feel? Or what? What's the fourth sense? It's umami. Uh, smell is umami, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> the sixth sense, of course, uh, the ability to see dead people. No, it's not sight. Fuck your sight. It's smell. <laughs> Yeah. No. So anyway, yeah. So uh, Dewey is now faced with a dual handicap. He killed his brother. He lost his sense of smell and his father hates him. And his father will remind him of this every day of his life that he should have died instead. And so Dewey is sent to the store after this tragedy to go pick up some butter, to buy a candle, <laughs> to buy a candle to burn for his brother. And while he's there, he sees these uh, these uh, old black. Uh, what are they like? Blues musicians are playing the blues in the store. Yeah, these appear to be blues legends. Uh, I am not big on the blues scene. Uh, yeah, these guys have a gravitas that uh, draws young Dewey in to hear them uh, sing the blues. He's like, I reckon I like that kind of music, but it's so sad. And they're like, well, that's why it's called the blues. That's a certain <laughs> type of music, son. And he's like, I reckon I'd like to sing some blues. And they're like, well, what would you have to be sad about, little boy? He's like, well, I have my brother. <laughs> <laughs> so they te they give him a guitar, and he immediately somehow has this uh, sense that he can learn music instantaneously, and he becomes a famous blues musician in about five minutes. Yes. Oh, well, that's what biopics do. They always set up the first time they ever lay uh, you know, eyes on a guitar. And a real biopic would have a montage of him training and getting better, and then we would cut to like him singing a song. But no, uh, not in the comedy biopic. He literally can sing uh, the minute he touches it. And what does he sing about, Vic? I've done a bad thing. I cut my brother in half. <laughs> Sorry. I snorted. That's the first time I've snorted on a podcast. Well done. Woo! Okay, so we're going to flash forward here a couple years. Dewey was like six years old when he killed his brother. And now we flash forward a couple years and he's like 14. And this is maybe, I mean, there's like five wonderful running jokes in this movie. And this is one of my favorite in that... 14-year-old Dewey is played by, what, mid-40s-year-old John C. Riley? 
At least, yeah. This is the great gag on the fact that uh, when you make a biopic, people, uh, the actors who are very vain, typically think they can play a lot younger than they can. I always think of Catch Me If You Can, where 30-something-year-old Leo DiCaprio plays, I think, 12-year-old uh, 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 Frank Abagnale. And so, yes, they've made the wise decision to cast everyone else as authentically 14, and Dewey is the front leader of this little band. And he goes, Mama, you made it! Yeah. <laughs> He's got wrinkles on his face. It's just, they don't even make an attempt to make him look young. It's literally just yeah. a 50-year-old man with a bunch of 12-year-olds. <laughs> They're passing him off as a bunch of 14-year-olds. So. Right. He dressed in a little bow tie and this little school uniform. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a great visual gag, and uh, it will not end here. I love the one line here. The mom's like, I can't believe you learned to play music because you learned without a sense of smell. And he's like, Mom, I learned by ear instead. <laughs> and it's got to be said, John C. Riley does not mug in this movie. These are very authentic line readings. I, I really think he plays this thing straight, and that's why it's so funny. I learned by ear, Mama. It's very sweet. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mention that because there's something to be said for taking a very serious, well-respected actor and throwing them in a comedy because they can really sell it. Mm-hmm. And just off the top of my head, the one I think of is Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda. Right. Great example. Yeah, because he wasn't really a comedian. He was a Shakespeare guy, but he sold the hell out of that role. And so that's mm-hmm. what these guys can do. Yeah. And so, you know, John C. Riley had a history of being like the funniest part of a drama. Uh, but here he really gets to, you know, go for broke. People saw him first break his comedy, you know, hymen, as it were, uh, during Talladega Nights. But here he really uh, gets to blend the two. And this is a tour de force performance for John C. Riley. I will later make the argument he should have been nominated for an Oscar. All right. Strong argument. I will. I will. You will have a receptive ear in that one, because it's, the more you watch this movie, the more you do notice how much he stands out just because mm-hmm. he sells other people's jokes. Mm hmm. Yeah. So uh, we get our first performance here uh, at the little talent show. Uh, of course, Dewey is very afraid to follow the jugglers and ballerinas. Uh, how are we going to follow that? Uh, but we get this song here from Dewey that is uh, Please Take My Hand, obviously a parody of the Beatles song about holding hands. But the great part about this is the audience reaction. The minute he plays this very innocent, please take my hand, all the girls in the vicinity are drawn like magnets to stand up, dance, and take off their clothes. Yes. It's the most innocent little song you've ever heard, but the audience <laughs> starts responding as if we're watching a rock and roll being invented in the 50s like Marty McFly. <laughs> he's just, right, he's right. literally just singing, hold my hand. And the girls are whipping their shirts off, and like there's audience members screaming, and like the one guy pukes, and there's old people mm-hmm. standing up yelling, this is an outrage, this is the devil's music. And like <laughs> there's people openly having sex in the crowd, I think, if you look. Right, right. I mean, he is corrupting them with the power of rock and or roll. Uh, and so much so that they have to, like, uh, the preacher of the town wants to excise Dewey as a demon spawn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so we, we flash forward again. There's so much going on right at the start of the movie that Dewey is kicked out of his house immediately. We go back to the house, and the dad already hates him for having mm-hmm. his son. And now he's like, well, you've introduced sex and perversion into this town with your rock and roll. And there's a great line here with the preachers there. And there's all these uh, villages protesting outside mm-hmm. the house like he's fucking Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. You know who's got hands, Dewey? The devil. And he uses <laughs> them for holding. <laughs> it's about holding hands. Yeah, that preacher is played by Rance Howard, Ron Howard's dad. Fun little cameo. The first of many, many cameos. But uh, uh, aside from our, you know, uh, our family unit, Margot Martindale and Raymond J. Barry, uh, Rance Howard here. Uh, good to see a little cameo. <laughs> 
Okay, so Dewey is kicked out of his house, and he's like, I don't need you. I'm 14, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to go make my living as a rock musician. And he's got a girlfriend. And again, as if uh, John C. Riley playing a 14-year-old isn't good enough, now we have his girlfriend, Kristen Wiig, who ah, plays a 12-year-old. Ah, yeah. <laughs> She's like, I'm your 12-year-old girlfriend, Dewey. Yes, that is the line my girlfriend quotes the most from this movie. Whenever I say, let's go do something, she goes, I'm your 12-year-old girlfriend! I will always support you and love you and, and, and treat you like a like a king, Dewey. Uh, yeah, Kristen Wiig here. This is the first time I remember seeing Kristen Wiig. When did she join SNL, uh, SNL historian Mario Lanza? Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of the exact year. It's around 2005, 6, 7, somewhere in yeah. there. She was really kind of when uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler were phasing out, she was phasing in as the new big thing. So she's right around that time period. Yeah, so this is when I fell in love with Kristen Wiig. She is so funny here uh, as Edith. Uh, uh, yeah, Dewey's 12-year-old girlfriend. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, she is, uh, again, uh, the, the same trope of she's got to be in her mid-30s at least. <laughs> yeah. So so Dewey and, and Edith move out, and again, he's 14 and she's 12, and they have a baby within like three months somehow. <laughs> like That's one of the running jokes in this movie. Every time you see Dewey and his wife, they have more kids. Like mm. we have one baby here. Within like a year, we're going to go to their house and he'll have three kids. And they'll just, like, multiply like Mogwai, basically. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is the only scene when they're saying goodbye uh, is the only scene where she is not pregnant. I think she's at various forms of pregnant with different children every other scene she's in. So Dewey goes out into the real world and he gets a job like uh, mopping the floors at a jazz club. There's like these the black singers up on stage and he just sits there and mimics their actions and their their sound because that's what he wants to do. He wants to be a black jack uh, black jazz musician, which seems like it's going to be hard to pull off. But this is Dewey's dream. Mm -hmm. Although it's not the only dream in the family because we have a great line here where you know Dewey spends the day mopping the floors. He goes home to his wife and she's got all these kids and she's like, Dewey, you're never going to make it. You're just a loser. You're and like she doesn't believe him. Mm -hmm. At all, and, and then he's like, "But this is my dream, Edith. I want to be a black musician." And she's like, "What about my dream, Dewey?" And here's the line I had to circle. <laughs> she's like, "What about my dreams?" And he says, "I can't build you a candy house. I told you the sun will melt it. It'll fall down. It won't work, Edith." It will if it never rains. <laughs> yeah, I love that you circle that he wants to be specifically a black uh, jazz musician. I don't think that's ever stated, but that is one of the great underlying jokes here of uh, uh, the one white guy in the black club is the guy who ultimately gets discovered. And uh, I do want to uh, circle a tour de force performance by uh, The Office's Craig Robinson as Bobby Shad. Again, it would be funny if he was okay, but it's really funny because he's authentically terrific as this, like he gives a performance of Jump Little Children jump and it's uh, absolutely uh, a star making he does a great job he could have had a career if he was born in this era craig robinson no no craig robinson's great well we my wife and i have long had a uh, an opinion that he was actually the best guy on the office and you really have to watch wow. it a couple times to really notice that that is a hot take uh, i love craig robinson the best that's a that's a it's a competitive title for sure <laughs> Yeah. So again, yeah, Craig Robinson is this famous jazz musician, and somehow he, he falls into a, a, a bad situation where he punched his landlord with both hands and developed laryngitis on the same day, so he can't sing. Mm -hmm. So they need someone to come up and perform for him. It's like, again, the Marty McFly story all over again, where Dewey's like, I can go up there and sing. I know all the songs. I watch you every day. And so It'll be a Bobby Shad and the Bad Men show, but it'll just be me tonight. Um, I love how uh, this movie b believes so strongly in the contrivances that have to happen for this career to work. And it's like they totally went with it. Okay, so Bobby Shad can't perform for some reason. What if he had all these ailments at the same time? <laughs> 
Yeah. He was halved. Yeah, he might have might as well have been halved. There should have been a machete in every scene. But yeah, I think that's what the the comedy writer in me really keys in on is how they really dress up all these necessities in the plot point. The script is already basically written. They're just fluffing up every element. That's actually a great observation. I'm glad you pointed that out because I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, it's really just fit in talented actors to play these scenes and it'll be great because the script is already there. Yeah, so it's really fun. And then uh, this is the scene that's probably most controversial, uh, I would imagine, uh, among many. Uh, but here we get John C. Riley doing a Bobby Shad impression, complete with a, a voice and uh, all his uh, rhythmic moving. And you know what? He kills. <laughs> now, what is the song that he sings, Vic? Uh, you got to love your Negro man. <laughs> uh, the, both uh, Bobby Shad and the manager go, is he playing Negro man? He is playing Negro man. <laughs> Yes, and we also, as as luck would have it, that night in the club, there happens to be these big suits from Hollywood, and this is one of the other running jokes in the movie that, you know, in this, in this uh, it's, it's often said that, you know, Jewish people run Hollywood, so in this movie, the suits are all Hasidic Jews in full-on outfit, and they're there to rec represent the record company. Oh, it's just, uh, again, this is a thing that could probably get some flack from some people, but uh, I'm going to go with it. It's hilarious. The suits are all played by uh, legends of comedy. You got Harold Ramis, Phil Rosenthal, uh, Martin Starr from Silicon Valley. Uh, it's just so fun. Everybody here is famous. <laughs> so the suits are there watching, and they love Dewey Cox's performance of You Gotta Love the Negro Man. <laughs> and they're like, we want that guy. We're going to sign him. And Craig Robinson's like, no, that's, that's my song. I'm, he's singing my song. They're like, no, we like him. <laughs> I'm the one you want. I think he's the one we want. <laughs> Yeah, so Dewey is invited to go to a recording studio, and this is where, uh, what's the guy? I always forget this. This, this is John Michael Higgins, uh, Christopher Guest favorite. Uh, this, uh, Mario, is my favorite scene in the movie. All right, so here we go. I'll try to walk people through this so they can explain it. I'll, I'll walk hard through it. <laughs> where where Dewey is given a, uh, a uh, audition in front of John Michael Higgins, and he sings, That's Amore, <laughs> and he just butchers it, and it's terrible. And John Michael Higgins goes on the greatest little rant here right. about how yeah, you can probably do better justice to this than I can. What is his exact words, how, how much Dewey's performance has offended him? So this is uh, so much fun. You see this in every biopic. This is the last shot before he creates his great masterpiece. Here's the run. You have failed conclusively. It's over. And there is nothing you can do here in this room that can turn that around. Nothing that can make up for what you have just done with that Samore. Now you have an opportunity here to look around, to look inside yourself, and create something that's so impressive, so amazing, the world can't help but take a look. But I'm going to tell you honestly, I don't think it's going to happen right here. <laughs> so we're laying it on as thick as possible. And what does Dewey have to do? He has to look around at these men he barely knows, and he's going to sing the song that will make him famous, the title song, It's Walk Hard. I, I will say you have saddened me a little bit because you left off my favorite line in that rant at the very end by Higgins. <laughs> oh, you want to talk about uh, uh, nothing can make up for the fact that nothing can make up for what you just did to that Zamore. Dewey replies, uh, my mother liked it. Your mother was wrong. <laughs> no, this is the line. Dewey, you have shaken my faith in the Jewish people. <laughs> These Jewish gentlemen usually have good taste. Well, Dewey's going to restore your faith in Judaism right here uh, as he breaks out walk hard. And again, another trope. He is singing a song nobody has heard before. 
He's singing it by himself, and all of a sudden, his bandmates know the backup lyrics and are playing along. Well, they even mention that in the episode, in the uh, in the scene where he's do he's like, just follow me. Which again, that's not how it would work in real life. But here we go. He reels off this hit, "Walk Hard." He just made up off the top of his head, and this is where we get this great montage of "Walk Hard." And again, admittedly, it is a catchy song. Every time I watch this movie, it kind of gets caught in my head. It's a, it the movie has the the song has to be good for this movie kind of to sell the premise. Right. And if this was the only good song in the movie, you'd be like, okay, they worked really hard on that and the rest of this stuff. They record 40 songs for this movie, Mario. This album is one of my favorites. There's song after song after song I like. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we'll get to some of the other songs in a minute, but we have this big montage here mm-hmm. where Dewey's song goes to, like, number one, I think, in 35 minutes. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the DJ is saying, this was recorded 35 minutes ago, uh, Jack McBrayer from 30 Rock. Yes, I love, they condense everything. That's what makes it seem so impossible. <laughs> yeah, so all of a sudden, Dewey's, like, the biggest rock star in existence, and we get a montage of him buying his wife, Edith. Uh, he gets her, like, a new house, and then he buys her a monkey, and then he buys her a giraffe. And then they have like three kids all of a sudden, and there's a a great scene where she's still mad at him. She's like, "Dewey, I don't like this life. I don't like." She's like, "You're never gonna make it." And he's like, "I've got a number one hit." Right, right, right. But really, this is about the fear that Edith feels. She runs into the bathroom. There's lots of temptations on the road, um, and of course, uh, 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 these temptations will plague Dewey. But right now, he's got his first hit song, and he's gonna play uh, a show with a couple of famous names. Oh boy, yeah, this is a fun one. Okay, so Dewey's uh, meteoric rise to fame happened overnight, and he's going to have one big show right here. He's going to have everything's going to come crashing down immediately after this. But this is the peak of his career, where he uh, is like a, <laughs> at a. There's a lot of again, one of the things that why I think this movie is so rich as a comedy is because there's a lot of stuff in here about music history and in jokes and just the history of rock and roll. So. Dewey's at a show with like Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper, and you have to assume Richie Valens is around there somewhere at some point. Right. <laughs> but Elvis, Elvis is the big name, mm. and they've rearranged the show, so Elvis, instead of being the closer at the end, is going to be before Dewey. Dewey Cox is now closing for Elvis Presley. <laughs> this is also his first public show. So, uh, yeah, uh, we got to heighten this to the max. Uh, it's so great. All these comedians are playing these parts. So, uh, John Ennis from uh, Mr. Show pops up as the Big Bopper, Frankie Munez plays buddy holly and then maybe in the most inspired casting in the film not a comedian but a real rock star jack white of the white stripes plays elvis in i think one of the most memorable uh, elvis impersonations i've ever heard you know considering how common those are he does something weird he almost doesn't speak english <laughs> Yeah, it's and I've read somewhere that a lot of the uh, cameos for this movie is they would specifically pick the wrong person for the cameo just to make it funny. And that's why, like, Buddy Holly is played by little Frankie Muniz here. He's, like, five feet tall. <laughs> like, he looks nothing like Buddy Holly. And we'll see this again later with Paul McCartney as Jack Black. But, yeah, mm-hmm. the Elvis impression is the one that really gets me. I just I remember just laughing the first time I saw this because he just speaks in these little non-sequiturs, these little Elvis non-sequiturs. And <laughs> right. he's, like, forever karate chopping Dewey, like, throwing karate shots at him. Yeah, only two kind of people know it, the Chinese and the king, and one of them is me. Hi-ya! <laughs> Oh, man. So intense. What a, what a tour de force performance in that little cameo. But OK, so uh, John C. Riley gets to do his song. This is dedicated to the love of his wife, uh, uh, Edith. Uh, this is a life without you is no life at all. And again, this is an honest to goodness good song. 
Oh, here's the question, Mario. Okay, so when I say watch Walk Hard, I say you got to seek out the two-disc DVD version of it that has the unrated uh, uh, 20 minutes longer uh, director's cut. The, I think American Cox is what it's called. And in that one, they intersplice footage of Dewey cheating on his wife while the song is playing. Is that in the theatrical? I don't remember. No, it's not. And I can say that because I've only seen the theatrical. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I've not, that's not in there. Okay, so uh, I am referencing a lot of the things in that ultimate 20-minute uh, cut because it just gets even more deep into the history. I say this is a movie that deserves to be an epic, so I encourage you to, to, to go the extra mile and find the, the, the un, uh, uh, unadulterated uh, uh, two-hour cut. Yeah, see, and it's funny because normally I don't encourage people to watch director's cut, and only because I try to explain the movie exactly in the easiest form it will be to find, so I'm telling people the way sure, they'll sure. see it. Mm-hmm. But this movie's so funny, and there's so many good things in it, I can actually, this is one of the few I can say, I bet the director's cut's even better. No, no, I mean, it is so self-indulgent that it, for me it works. <laughs> they just go deeper and deeper on every joke. And so uh, I think they had to tame some stuff down. Again, this is a movie released in theaters, so there's a lot of boobs, but I think the director's cut has even more boobs, if that's possible. They stuff a few more in there. Um, and so this montage is very funny to me. Oh, yeah, and this movie also doesn't skimp on male nudity as well. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> I think historic. Uh, I, I have something to say about that when we get there. That's not far off. I think it's the next scene. Okay, so here we go to one of the other great running jokes in this movie. Again, there's probably about five that are among, like, each one of them would have been the best running joke in a comedy in the 2000s. This is where Dewey discovers drugs for the first time. Yes, okay. So Sam the drummer, played by Tim Meadows, is the gateway drug. I think this scene is probably the most enduring from uh, from Walk Hard. People have seen this and don't know it's from a movie. They've just seen it as a meme or like a clip on YouTube back in the old days. Or, you know, 2007 was the perfect time to share a clip like this. Yeah, and again, this is just the type of scene that as a comedy writer, I wish I'd ever written something like this, where Dewey walks into the bathroom and he sees Tim Meadows, his drummer, Sam, doing, uh, what's he doing, marijuana, doing reefer. Doing reefer, we're doing the reefer, you don't want no part of this shit. Uh, and then Dewey's going to ask a million questions that are all going to be answered in a surprising way. Uh, Sam says, uh, can't you smell the reefer? No, Sam, I can't. I don't have a sense of smell. Uh, well, anyway, you don't want no part of this shit, Dewey. Dewey says, I don't want to get a hangover. It doesn't give you a hangover. Well, I don't want to get addicted. It's not habit forming. Uh, okay, I don't want to overdose on it. You can't OD on it. Is it going to make me want to have sex? It makes sex even better. Sounds kind of expensive. It's the cheapest drug there is. You don't want it. (laughs) I think I kind of want it. Yeah, and this will be a running thing throughout the movie that Dewey is is forever walking in on Sam doing a new type of drug, and and Sam will encourage him, you don't want this, while describing it in the most fantastic terms possible, and Dewey eventually will get hooked on every drug known to man. Right, and I think this is the most successful of those scenes. We have a lot of callbacks here, but literally, I think this could be verbatim printed in, like, the Marijuana Advocate Monthly. This is, uh, (laughs) at the time, which was, you know, everybody in the audience was like, yeah, weed, woo! Um, probably really embrace the idea that this is pointing out all the reasons weed should be legal. <laughs> okay, so the crash of Dewey is about to start here. He's been introduced to Reefer. It's going to be a gateway drug, and this is where the next scene is him. Like, uh, he calls his wife. He calls Edith from home, who's stuck with the babies, and she's upset that he's on the road and he's falling prey to all these temptations, and he's trying to convince her that, no, I'm still the same old Dewey. I wouldn't fall for that. Well, literally, he's at a full-on orgy, if I recall. <laughs> like, Yeah. <laughs> he's talking to his wife on the phone while there are naked women and one man <laughs> right next to him. 
Yeah, yeah, and this is where we, like we talked about earlier, male nudity, where, you know, I think Judd Apatow read, I think I read somewhere, he puts a male penis in every movie. <laughs> That's equality, Mario. This is what we're working towards. It's the trademark. It's like the wet bandits. <laughs> uh, my favorite thing about this is uh, how shocked the world was by this. You can, I remember seeing this in theaters, and this is the one uh, experience I might have over you, watching this with a crowd, even small. This You couldn't even hear the scene that was going on. People were just screaming at the idea of this penis. You don't see the face it's attached to, but this penis is just small enough to have personality. Yeah, and what's funny for people who haven't seen this movie is it's a close-up of Dewey talking to his wife on the phone while some naked guy just walks into frame from the upper, like, the upper right side of the screen. Mm -hmm. And it's like whoever framed the shot is like, you know, we need a dick in the corner of the screen right there. <laughs> so Dewey's talking and John C. Riley's acting and they're having this dramatic scene while he's getting upstaged by literally a dick right behind him. It's so shocking that I read a lot of reviews in prep for this podcast, uh, Mario. Roger Ebert, who was still alive when this movie came out, notes at the end of his thing, uh, completely uh, unrelated to the review itself, I must mention one particular element about this film. As Riley is having a telephone call, a male penis is framed in the upper right corner of the screen. No explanation to why, or who it belongs to, or what it happens to be doing there. It's just a penis. I think it's just, a, it's just to establish the amount of gratuitous nudity, but speculate as I will, I cannot imagine why it's in the film. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, and here's my favorite part about the penis running joke in this movie. At the very end of the movie, Dewey's giving this flashback concert performance, and it goes over his entire life, and you see all the montage of all the things that happened to him, and they literally just have a shot of the penis in the montage. <laughs> yeah, it's a great payoff for the penis. Uh, if you get the DVD set, there's also something called the Cockumentary, which is about the behind-the-scenes story of that penis. <laughs> I'll tease that. Oh, that's teasing, all right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is, I think, uh, 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 male comedies, especially rated R ones, will chase this penis moment. I think a lesser version of this movie, uh, 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 the follow-up to Borat Bruno, will attempt to have the greatest penis interaction of all time. But for my money, nothing can top Tyler, uh, the dude with the penis. <laughs> yeah, again, it's really such a wonderful upstaging shot. And just it just drives home everything you know about comedy and comedy screenwriting, that just one little thing off to the right can take over the entire focus of a scene. Right. And it's a, you know, it's a real success for the editing department, too. There's just enough penis that you have a laugh through the entire thing, but not too much penis where you're like, OK, I'm done. I'm tired. <laughs> yes. It's all, all penis philosophy. This has all been worked out by like Plato and Aristotle and stuff. The penis leaves you wanting more, Mario, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> OK, I'm going to cut that, Vic. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Let's circumcise this conversation and move on. All right, just we'll just snip that. All right. Yeah, so anyway, just the tip. Anyway. So anyway, uh, this is where in the middle of the orgy, uh, Dewey's dad comes and knocks on the door. This is the first time his dad has talked to him in apparently many years. The dad sees the penis, by the way. Yeah, we got the penis in there. Yeah, the dad, of course, sees that. A little horrified, but again, that's not why he's here. He's here to deliver some news. He's like, Dewey, I got to tell you about Ma. And Dewey's like, oh, what happened? And the dad's like, well, you know, your song came on the radio, Walk Hard, and it was kind of catchy. And we get this little flashback of mom and dad listening to their son, their beloved son's song. And they're like, you know, this is not bad. And even the dad is like, you know, I hate my son. I want him to die. But this is a good song. Catchy. Uh Unfortunately, this leads to Ma's untimely passing. As she's dancing, she gets wrapped up in the radio cord, and her vertigo acts up, and she falls out a window. Uh, this is, of course, after earlier, she says, nothing horrible ever happened from no vertigo. Yeah, she falls out the window, lands, survives that, but then the radio comes falling out and crushes her skull. 
heartbreaking. Yeah, the dad is just here to remind, to let Dewey know, you know, your music kills people. You're the devil, Dewey. And then the dad walks off, and it's like the sad scene, and then the dad just pops his head back in the frame and's like, wrong kid died. <laughs> For no reason. But this leads Dewey down a very dark spiral. He kicks all the orgy people out, and I think this is the first appearance of my favorite running gag from this. Dewey versus the sinks in his life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, every time Dewey, something horrible happens to Dewey, he will go into the bathroom and go medieval on all the sinks and rip them off and throw them down on the ground. And he will go through so many sinks in this movie. Like, the sink budget was huge on this movie. Yeah, you think the Blues Brothers had the most car crashes at the time when they made that movie. This has got to be destroying more sinks than have ever been destroyed in any of these biopics combined. Yeah, well, it's kind of the opposite of the penis theory, how with the penis, you want less is more, you just want the one shot. With the sink, it's the whole different comedy philosophy, you want more is more with the sinks. Right, you do one sink, two sink, uh, another one sink, and then the end is literally him in a bathroom stall, and there's just an army of sinks, <laughs> and you know the carnage is coming. <laughs> So Dewey is horrified. He killed his mother. He's cheating on his wife. He's hooked on drugs. And now he runs into the bathroom. And who is there but his drummer, Sam? And this time, Sam has a new drug. Sam is on uh, the cocaine at this point. <laughs> you don't want no part of this shit, Dewey. It turns all your bad feelings into good feelings. It's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dewey's like, oh, and it's implied Dewey's going to be on coke real quick. <laughs> and so, yeah, he gets, he takes the coke, and then all of a sudden we just flash forward, and uh, now Dewey, the coke has apparently changed his personality, that he's no longer this country and western singer. Now he's like a punk artist. <laughs> apparently the, the coke has really ramped up his personality. Yes, we hear Walk Hard done in triple time, uh, uh, and Matt Besser, uh, founder of the UCB Improv School, uh, points out, hey, you sound like some kind of, uh, punk! <laughs> Again, labeling everything, uh, Dewey, yeah, he's going uh, triple Marty McFly. He's inventing all these different forms of music, you know, decades before they become popular. <laughs> okay, and it is here at this point in the movie we meet the other major character. We meet, uh, and, you know, as he's struggling with his new punk identity, all of a sudden this beautiful young woman walks down in the theater and she says, uh, Mr. Cox, I heard you're looking for a new backup singer. Mm -hmm. And this is Jenna Fisher as a uh, character named Darlene Madison, which... Now, you probably have to know the Johnny Cash story. The whole thing of Johnny Cash is that he cheated on his wife with his backup singer, and they became like one of the great romances of all time, which is literally what happens here, in that Dewey has now found the love of his life, this Darlene, and we get a, a wonderful montage, probably the highlight of the movie for me coming up here. Um, so, yes, uh, I love that Darlene literally has a gigantic crucifix on her neck. Uh, if you want to see literally why they can't be together, you just have to look down at her cleavage to know. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I've always been a big fan of Jenna Fisher. It always saddens me that she didn't have a bigger movie career because I think she's really good in this. Yeah. I, I think she's fantastic. And again, she shows up and immediately they're smitten with one another. But she's like this goody-goody religious girl and she can't she can't do anything. We, we, we can't give in to the temptations. We just have to be <laughs> friends. And they, they milk this trope for the next 10 minutes of them singing duets together. And like he wants to sleep with her, but he can't because they're not married. And like she's teasing him to the point that at one scene she's like, Sleeping on top of him in her underwear, but they're still trying to be friends. <laughs> yes, we're friends. Uh, this is maybe uh, the biggest laugh in the movie. Uh, the song Let's Duet, which is a uh, code for Let's Do It. Uh, all these things in my dreams, you're blowing me some kisses. Uh, we just play that game over and over again. I think this is the real champion success of this movie. You can play this song for people that don't know it's a comedy, and half of them will not get it. My mom loves this song. 
Oh, absolutely. This one is absolutely holds up. I think I have this. I used to have this on my iPod for a long time. This is a yeah. solid song. And like you said, they're all just not like a double entendres, all the lines. And there's one that I wrote here. I'm going to beat off all my demons. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, here I come a sneaking up behind you. You can always come in my back door. <laughs> yeah. And then while, as they're singing this and they have this unbelievable sexual tension towards one another, they're doing all these activities which are like codes for sex. Like there's mm-hmm. one, they're in a barn for some reason doing all this construction and like they're <laughs> screwing things and sawing things. And then at one, there's one scene where they're eating ice cream and Jenna Fisher pulls off a particularly impressive deep throat of the ice cream. <laughs> yeah, well, John C. Riley is licking as fast as he humanly can. I, I, ha- uh, I always think of that gif of them when they're doing wood shop, and he's just wildly hammering without looking at anything. <laughs> I think that's one of the funniest images of all time. Ah, this movie's so good. Yeah, again, it's just so many great jokes, and we're just we're whipping through this as fast as we can to try to actually get this in a podcast. Where we're leaving stuff out, so again, just. Just watch this movie. That's all I can say. There's just anybody who likes comedy would find this hilarious. It's just wall-to-wall jokes. And just to move the story along here, um, and you know, she's just teasing him and teasing him that they can't have sex. And meanwhile, she's got again the low-cut dress. She's laying on top of him. She's like flirting with him. And then she's like, "We can't do anything because we're not married." And so dude is like. <laughs> Hey, I know. How about we get married? So <laughs> cut to <laughs> yeah. Dewey gets double married. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I love that they put. He says he forgets that he's married, but they literally put the second ring on top of his first ring. <laughs> you can yeah. see shots where he has two wedding rings on. <laughs> so Dewey, yeah, Dewey will do anything in the name of a little tail here. He gets double yeah. married, and then this is where uh, Edith, his first wife, Kristen Wiig, walks in and catches him in bed as he's mounting Jenna Fisher. And there's this whole long discussion, like it's not what it looks like, and they're both arguing. Well, what? does it look like to who it's got to look like what it is to someone here <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah dewey's like he's telling uh darlene he's like well you led me on you gave me these signals like that time you uh what's the line you told me about that dream where you were licking my balls that seemed like a sign <laughs> like a sign anyway uh, uh poor pregnant uh, uh edith runs away runs home starts packing uh dewey goes full terminator 2 run on her and goes shh, 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 shh. edith don't go edith don't go uh, and the only thing that e- uh, uh, Edith is taking everything uh, uh, and says Dewey can go fuck himself. That's a name for a good song. But uh, Dewey demands that you leave him his monkey. <laughs> okay, two lines here. Just the comedy writer, the stuff that jumps out in my ears here, where where they're fight. He's fighting with Kristen Wiig of whether whether it was right for him to get double married, and, and he's like a. All right, guilty is charged. In the middle of the argument, he kind of looks up. Guilty is charged, and he starts humming the bars. And Kristen Wiig is like, "Don't you dare write a song right now, Dewey." <laughs> Edith, don't go. Um, but she leaves, and so we cut to the guilty is charged montage. Um, I love that they set this up again. This is so uh, straight out of the trope book. Uh, Dewey's acting differently. Uh, the bandmates notice. Well, that was early Dewey. This is middle Dewey. <laughs> yeah. And like I said earlier, this is like literally his Mexican phase where he has like a mariachi band behind him and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really like a poncho. Yes. I mean, this is, I think he looks most like Johnny Cash here. This is Man in Black. But there is like a, yeah, mariachi band backing section. But this is, again, a terrific song. Dewey is strung out. We get all this, you know, him freaking out in various ways. There's more sync carnage. <laughs> Edith, don't leave me. That's a good song title, but don't leave me. <laughs> then we, I don't know if this is in the uh, theatrical version, but in the unrated version, we have a montage of him having sex with various people, but he's so disinterested, he's falling asleep. At one time, he's on the phone with a radio station. Am I the 47th caller? Ah, damn it. <laughs> yeah, that's not in the, the, the theatrical. I haven't seen that. 
Although yeah. we did we did skip over the part where the next drug he gets introduced to, mm. where he catches Sam doing pills, uppers and downers, <laughs> and he wants some, and Sam's like, "You want this, Dewey? This is the next logical step for you." <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, guilty is charged, culminates with a drug bust gone wrong. Uh, Dewey is arrested and sent to prison. Uh, he is literally guilty as charged. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the rehab scene because this one makes me laugh so hard. Sure. I, I don't know if everyone would find this scene funny, but it's just Dewey's in rehab. He's sent to rehab for the first time because he's just his life is spiraling out of control. He's on drugs and and rehab in this movie consists of him being cold in a hospital bed and shaking. So the nurse brings more blankets and then he's too hot. And so they pull the blankets off. And then at one point he tells her, I'm cold and I'm hot at the same time. And the nurse lets loose a dread cry. He needs more blankets and also less blankets, doctor. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Uh, 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 there's also that really funny scene with Harold Ramis of like rehab. Um, so yes, uh, uh, Dewey goes to rehab. Uh, I think all his friends see him while he's in a coma. They decide he's going to die, but you know who visits him in his hour of need? It is Darlene. She returns. She's back. Yeah, they have angry makeup sex, and there's a wonderful shot where they're taking off their clothes to have sex. And like when John C. Riley pulls off his shirt, it's such an obvious insert of somebody with really good abs. Like they don't even try to pretend it's really John C. Riley. Right, right. That's got to be an old gag, but I can't think of another time it's been used better. Yeah, no, it's just a yeah, it's a, it's, it's a throwaway gag here, so it's it's not even one of the highlights. But this is where we flash forward to the next phase, and again, the whole rest of the movie will be different phases where basically Dewey will uh, mimic a real life history of some famous musician, and now he's going to become a folk singer. We cut to Berkeley in 1966, and Dewey's apparently in the barn talking to Charlie Manson, and all his friends are like, "Oh, that guy, just salt of the earth, Charlie. He's great. Well, we love having him around." <laughs> I love the Jenna Fisher again. Seth up the uh, time period the 60s are an exciting and important time lines like that are so funny because they belong in the mouth of no one they're impossible to make sound authentic and so to have these you know uh, real dramatic performances peppered in with impossible lines like that it's all the funnier yeah, and here we go. He is a Dewey's Bob Dylan phase where he decides he's going to be a folk singer because his music has to mean something. We're in the 60s, and he's starting to dress like Dylan, and he's got a line here where he's like, I, like, I want my music to mean something. I want it to fight injustice. Like, I want it to represent the people who have injustices done to them, like women and midgets and stuff. <laughs> This is a great time to shout out the Walk Hard soundtrack on iTunes. It's a 30-song edition of this. There are so many songs from the Bob Dylan era that don't make this, but he has, like, full songs dedicated to different plights. In the movie, you see him uh, fighting for the rights of the short panther party, the midgets. Uh, but also, he sings songs about mulattoes and uh, uh, <laughs> single women. Um, it's really funny stuff. So, uh, yeah, go check out the album to get all the full Dewey, the full dossier of Cox. I'm actually going to do that, and I'm not going to go for the Cox part, but I'm actually going to go get the soundtrack right after this because you've, you've talked me into it. So you have actually sold me on something I already love, so nice job, Nick. That's, that's how effective this podcast is, Mario. <laughs> yeah, and again, just there's music jokes in this in these, this phase of the movie just left and right. And there's one here that just anybody who knows oldies knows this part where uh, Dewey's talking about how the 60s have changed him. There's a different attitude in the world. He's like, you know, there's something happening here. What it is isn't exactly... 
obvious. <laughs> Which, you kind of have to know your 60s music to know that's a pun on a song, but it's a yeah. good line. You know, there's been so many parodies of Bob Dylan in comedy throughout the years. It's it's very cliche to make fun of his, his raging voice. But I've never heard anyone parody the fact that his lyrics don't make any sense. The song Royal Jelly is hilarious. Here's a couple of lines. Mailboxes drimp like lampposts in the twisted birth canal of the Coliseum. Uh, what? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> There's one line in there that I just caught when he says, Rim job fairy teapots. <laughs> the darling of the laundromats. Yes. Uh, Woodrow Wilson and a pair of cats. Uh, nothing makes any sense uh, uh, in the Bob Dylan era. But we see people are really appreciating him. Anyway, I love the 60s era of Dewey. But uh, how does this lead uh, to uh, the later era of the 60s? I think we have to take a trip to India to meet with the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Again, I am a huge Beatle maniac. I don't mention that. But I went through a huge phase in college where I just listened and bought every album. I read every single book. Like I know all my Beatles history. And this scene right here is so funny. If you know the Beatles, you know their history where I'll just kind of sum it up for people. There's no way I can sell this until all the jokes. But he goes he's going to go to India because he wants to go study with the Maharishi and he wants to do, uh, you know, learn uh, transcendental meditation. And so Dewey and his band go to India and the Beatles are there. And of course, the Beatles are played by the like I said, the, the least appropriate people to play the Beatles. Where we have who is it? Paul Rudd. Is he John Lennon? Yeah, Paul Rudd's Lennon, uh, Jack Black is McCartney, John Schwartzman is Ringo, and Justin Long is Harrison. So uh, an all-star comedy team of the mid-2000s. You know what's funny is just on from a staff pick's perspective, like every movie I've watched lately has Justin Long in it. It's the craziest thing. What? <laughs> I just did an episode on Galaxy Quest. He's in there. Yeah, I just did Drag Me to Hell. He's in there. I just watched Jeepers Creepers in anticipation of seeing if that would hold up for staff picks. It doesn't, but he's in there. <laughs> and then this one, I'm like, where's Justin Longway? Whatever happened to him? Is the next staff picks movie Tusk? Yes, Tusk is the big one. Yeah, we're coming up on that. Yeah, it's my, my Justin Long marathon here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, okay, even more so, my wife right now is watching, I bought her for her birthday, a uh, complete DVD collection of the TV show Ed. And guess who's in that show? Justin Long. Wow, is Justin Long the unofficial mascot of the podcast? <laughs> Apparently he is. I gotta get him on here so we can talk about a movie or something. <laughs> I think he'd be happy to be appreciated in 2018. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, this Beatles scene. I, do you find this scene as funny as I do, this Beatles scene? This is a comedy masterclass, Mario. Uh, you know they only had a day with all these celebrities. The fact that they got them all in one scene is pretty amazing. But the eight people here, you know that there is a, you know, a 45-minute edition of this scene somewhere. The DVD has an extra about eight minutes of it, and that's really fun. But here it's just every joke is killer. Uh, you know they went through every Beatles song in the catalog and punned backwards. It's so, so funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, unspoken hero of this scene is it's the guy from the 40-year-old version, the guy who plays the Maharishi. He is so funny as a little straight man kind of trying to mediate the conflict here. Yeah, and what he's, but, uh, Vic is saying is correct. Yeah, literally the scene ends with the Beatles. They just hate each other. There's all these tensions between them, and they start fighting and calling each other names. And, yeah, once at one point you said uh, John calls Paul a cunt at one point, and then, yeah, uh, your songs are still going to be shite when I'm 64, Paul. <laughs> Also, uh, this is talked about in the audio commentary, but it's very true. It's the only time in the movie that somebody has the audacity to look into the camera lens. Uh, and that's Paul Rudd when he says it's impossible to think of all the things you can 
Imagine. <laughs> yeah. And again, just even if you don't want to watch this movie, Google this scene. Just write Google walk hard uh, Beatles scene. And I know someone must have put it on there. And the, the thing that really jumps out at me besides just the audacity of casting Jack Black as Sir Paul McCartney, but just Paul Rudd's overly Liverpudlian accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the way he hits certain phrases. It's so goofy. And yes. again, just this scene alone would make this a comedy classic. And as it is, this is like just one of many scenes in this movie yeah in high school i think the line that i quoted most with my friends was the ringo star uh i wrote a song about an octopus <laughs> <laughs> yeah ringo forever trying to get noticed by the other beatles and they don't even pay attention to him you're lucky we still let you play drums <laughs> Yeah, that drooms. That's the that's yes. the that's what makes it so funny. Mm-hmm. So there's so many great performances here, but just as a comedy writer, what I really appreciate is we continue to drop the things that tell you what is happening. One of the recurring jokes is everybody who plays a celebrity will repeatedly say their own name or have somebody say their name to them so you remember who they are. But the Maharishi one point says, "Beatles, stop fighting here in India." <laughs> The remind you of the location is so funny to me, and I really, I can't pinpoint why. See, that's why it's really great to have comedy writers on the show, because I didn't even catch that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I uh, just uh, enjoy, you know, this scene has so many lessons you can learn from how to write a group scene, and uh, yeah, I just think it's terrific, and uh, this is probably improv's best moment in the film, too. I think uh, a lot of this stuff is come up with on the fly. Okay, we're going to skim through just some uh, overview of the next couple scenes here, because we kind of have a cap on this podcast, but... uh No! So- <laughs> Three hours, four hours, Mario. <laughs> this is how I get you back for the uh, your your comedy education you did with me. That's true. That was supposed to be, I think, one my comedy education. You said, "Give me ten moments and it'll be an hour." And I said, "How about thirty moments and four hours?" <laughs> and we did it. I think I killed Mario's voice for a week that day. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course I had to do it because I'm Mario Lanza. <laughs> and this is a podcast. <laughs> yeah, we are doing a podcast on staff picks. <laughs> All right, so. This is uh, Dewey's about to be introduced to a new drug, and of course it's the Beatles, so they're like, why don't you take some LSD with us? Like, it's it's designed by a scientist, it's very good. <laughs> so, Dewey's oh. getting hooked. Yeah, they, uh, we have an LSD trip here scene where Dewey is pulled literally into the Yellow Submarine cartoon. <laughs> this I appreciate to no end, because you know this was a very expensive joke. And in this era of comedies, movies didn't get to do big expensive gags like this. I know this because this was not the original intention for the LSD trip. It was going to be just like a, a wacky green screen moment. And they thought of this idea and they actually got the funding for it. It looks like Yellow Submarine. They have cartoon versions of their version of the Beatles. So Paul McCartney looks more like Jack Black here than he does <laughs> Paul McCartney. It is so funny. Yeah, and especially the line, as you said before, we're the trippy cartoon Beatles. <laughs> and then, yeah, Dewey's in there and he's having an acid flashback and he has a bad trip. Mm-hmm. And of course, the thing with Dewey having a bad trip is what happens is a cartoon machete comes and cartoon halves him in his bad trip. So <laughs> I can see my large colon. <laughs> my God, how did, how is this movie not a hit? It's crazy. I don't know. Maybe there's just too much. It's too. It's too funny for one person to enjoy. Uh, this this is could have been the Titanic of movies, uh, Mario. People would have come and seen this comedy over and over and over again to catch all the gags. <laughs> okay, so Dewey is now going through phases of his life. He leaves his Beatles phase. He leaves his Dylan phase. And eight months later, now he's in like a Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys phase, where he's right, like right. <laughs> jumping on a trampoline for four straight days. He has a his <laughs> sandbox in his house. He 
is putting together this orchestral sound in his in his composition. So he's no longer a rock and roll musician. Now he has like didgeridoos and theremins and like a goat. <laughs> <laughs> we have armies of bushmans and very tangy harps. Uh, uh, this is absolutely hilarious. Again, this is an expensive thing to shoot. We have a scene with probably 80 extras in it. It's so cool. Um, uh, yes. Uh, also, introduction of a character we haven't seen yet here, but David Crumholtz plays uh, Dewey's apparently longtime manager. I think this is funny because Crumholtz literally played the exact same part in Ray. He plays Ray's manager. <laughs> So, yeah, so Dewey's band is just fed up with him doing this Brian Wilson shit. And they're like, this is terrible. This is not good music. We don't need 600 didgeridoos in one song. And so they all leave, and there's this big uh, showdown where his band members, they, you know, they, uh, they drop all their grievances over the years. Like, you never paid for drugs. You had sex with me, Dewey. <laughs> I'm still getting over that. Uh, apparently, uh, Dewey's gift to everyone every Christmas is some Siamese glass cats. I don't want Siamese glass cats. So his band leaves, and Dewey, of course, smashes another bathroom, goes through, and just goes medieval on all these sinks. And then his wife, Darlene, is like, I'm, she's ready to leave him. She's like, this is enough, Dewey. You're, just, you're strung out on drugs. You're a mess. Promise me, no more drugs, or I'm going to leave. He's like, I promise. And literally in the middle of his promise, he takes a piece of tablet of PCP. <laughs> <laughs> it's candy. Um, again, I have such an appreciation for this, uh, you know, uncoupling scene. Uh, the, the band breakup was funny, but this one with Jenna Fisher is not really played for laughs until the end. So they, they show restraint. There's probably two minutes of laughless, uh, big screen comedy here, and it builds to a really fun payoff that ultimately leads, you know, Dewey running down the streets of San Francisco in an underwear diaper, and he jumps on a building and screams, I am Zeus! <laughs> So anyway, Dewey ends up in rehab again and in more blankets. <laughs> blankets on and off him until he's achieved the proper core temperature. And this is where kind of the uh, the rehabilitation of Dewey will begin now. Now we flash forward to 1976, and there's like disco music going on, and we see him. He's off drugs. He's mm -hmm. jogging. He's eating healthy. and uh, he, But he can't write the songs. He's blocked because he misses Darlene. He just doesn't know how to get back into his old phase. And this is where his manager convinces him to do a TV variety show <laughs> so this is its own movie on its own and we're going to condense it down here the dvd version this is where you add probably 15 minutes of the movie the 70s are really uh cut down in the theatrical cut but uh yeah the big thing is the dewey cock show which is like a total parody of uh you know uh donnie and marie sonny and Cher. uh it's cheesy it's like disco versions of walk hard and oh i love this set i love the studio audience the terrible sketches that they write for this there's one point where we see the waving of uh, a mounties and like a a horse a horse split in half <laughs> again the split in half motif continues yeah so so again he's uh and this is one of the best scenes in the movie coming up here with jane lynch jane lynch plays this uh entertainment reporter and dewey's manager is like you got to get people back on your side dewey you got to you know reinvent explain to people what the show is what you're doing when it's on what the time slot is and that you're off drugs tell them you're you're not strung out on this stuff anymore so <laughs> dewey gives this wonderful interview with jane lynch and this is the one that really feels improvised as well this whole scene yeah, this is really, really fun. She she does both the uh, clean Entertainment Tonight-like reporter, and the minute the cameras are off, she lets loose. Her posture changes. goes, look, I know what it's like to be on a piece of crap show because I'm hosting one right now. I feel you. 
It's a great, this is really part of the, you know, uh, the renaissance of Jane Lynch, right? This is right around when Glee was coming out. People discovered that she was one of the funniest people alive, Jane Lynch. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And she steals, I mean, really any scene she's in in anything, and this is one she steals as well. Although uh, John C. Riley has some great stuff where, again, they're trying to rehab his image and make America think he's a good guy again. And so she's asking him all these questions like, how's your, uh, how's your parents? Are they proud of you? And he's like, well, my mom's dead. My dad doesn't talk to me because he hates me because I'm the worst person ever. Uh, also, my wife left me and I have no, uh, I don't see her again. And she's like, how about your kids? He's like, well, I'm involved in a custody battle. They're trying to force custody onto me. <laughs> I don't really think I should be, I have to see my kids, but I, it's being forced. And he's like, but, you know, I just want America to know that I don't mainline acid anymore. <laughs> yeah. And you can catch the Dewey Cox show, 8 o'clock. <laughs> this is getting very depressing. Uh, Dewey Cox, do you ever have a chance to smell the roses? I don't have a fucking sense of smell, okay? He storms off. <laughs> okay, so we're at the very end of the movie here, and Dewey has lost everything, and he, he cannot figure out why his life is in the crap or nothing ever works out for him. And he realizes now, in a bit of a, again, there's some good dramatic scenes in this movie, I have to go talk to my father. I have to make peace with Pa, who's hated me my whole life, who's accused me of killing my brother. So I'm going to go apologize. So he goes to the old farm, the old homestead, and he sees his dad, and he explains. He's like, you know, I apologize. I never realized you know, how much it hurt you and how much I let you down, and I just want to apologize for everything and say, you know, I love you and I need you in my life. And, uh, and it's a really touching scene. At least at first. Yes, at first, uh, uh, while Paul maybe forgives him, he does believe the only way to settle their grievances is another machete fight. <laughs> and so Dewey is like, no, no, Paul, I don't want to do this. Paul will not hear it. Vengeance in his heart. This goes full Quentin Tarantino. As Paul swings the machete at Dewey, Dewey ducks back in cover, and Paul halves himself. Oh, no. Well, he has a great line there. You know, Dewey, the right kid is going to die tonight. <laughs> oh, but uh, the, we get uh, you know, mirror images of Nate and Paul here. Uh, again, Paul now has been you know cut in half. The way this literally looks is so ridiculous. We can see the actor standing through dirt, and we just have this like prop legs <laughs> standing up there. Oh God! Yeah, the dad has accidentally killed himself, and he he finally sees the world from Dewey's eyes, from his son's eyes. He's like, I never understood how easy it was to accidentally cut somebody in half before. And Dewey's like, No, Dad. And so again, this is uh Dewey has now officially lost everything, and he goes in, and this is where he just goes mad ass on the bathroom. Mm -hmm. where he takes out the entire bathroom, smashes all the sinks, and then he decides to go out to the rest of the house, too. He, like, what, saws through his couch at one point? <laughs> this is straight Looney Tunes. He's sawing through a couch. He's got a jackhammer. He starts punching some, uh, like, palm trees. <laughs> Uh, uh, Mario, there's one thing. I know we're trying to wrap this up quickly, but in the DVD cut, they cut this entire subplot where Dewey gets remarried to a uh, uh, model Cheryl Cox Teagues. Um, and he has a party and he gets all these people out of his house. But uh, who is there? It's TV's Dallas's Patrick Duffy. Wow. Uh, when he starts going crazy, Dewey punches the shit out of Patrick Duffy and uh, Cheryl pulls him off, says, Dewey. Patrick Duffy is just saying what we're all feeling. <laughs> That's great. I gotta. I I actually oh. have the uh, the director's cut. I gotta watch it just for that scene. God, that that scene is hilarious. Best use of Patrick Duffy in thirty forty years. <laughs> okay, so well until Quentin Tarantino rediscovers him. Right, right, right. Ooh, yeah, tease. Um, but yes, this montage is full Looney Tunes. It's so funny. And at the end, Dewey's at his lowest point. The only thing that can bring him out of his despair is the face of a young child. We introduce one of Dewey's many children. This is Dewdrop. 
<laughs> yeah, Dewey Jr. Dewey Jr. just suddenly stops by the house. I don't know how he got a ride over there, but all of a sudden Dewey Jr.'s here. And he's like, Dad, want to play catch? And Dewey's like, well, I've never played catch with a kid before. Let's go outside. That'll be fun. And so, like, the kid is terrible at baseball. <laughs> he doesn't know how to throw. Dewey's like, you suck. And he's like, well, I never had a dad. I need a dad to play catch with me. So Dewey makes it a mission now. He's going to play catch with all of his kids and start to know them. And he's like, how many kids are there? And the kid's like, what does he say? There's like 22 plus 14 half-brothers. Yeah, yeah. Dewey's got almost 40 kids. So many so that he's starting to, like, we do a montage of, like, oh, it kind of looks like Dewey, kind of looks like Dewey. Then we get, like, a, you know, six-foot-tall black Asian teenager, and Dewey goes, are you sure you're one of mine? (laughs) So Dewey is making a a concerted effort to get to know his family, and we see them driving around, him and his kids in, like, the Partridge family bus. It's like, come on, get happy. Yeah, honestly, like, again, this is so ridiculous, but it is, like, emotionally resonant. I find this very moving. <laughs> yes. Vic is the one guy who was in tears at the end of Walk Hard. <laughs> it's not a lie to say I haven't cried at this movie more than once, Mario. Um, so Dewey really has a full life. The only thing that's missing is someone to share it with. Uh, we cut to 1992. Dewey's been a great father, and look who shows up. It's 50-year-old Darlene Madison. Yes, and here's the touching reconciliation where Darlene and Dewey get together, and he, he admits all his mistakes of the past, and that she was the only one he ever loved. And who was she married to? She was married to, like, Glenn, Glenn Campbell. Campbell. <laughs> yeah, so he so she's not with Glenn Campbell anymore, so they get back together, and this is a nice, heartwarming moment. And then when they go for a walk and they fall in love again, all of a sudden, you forgot about this subplot, but Dewey, he can smell. His sense of smell is back. And he's smelling the roses, and he's smelling the air and the trees, and he even picks up, what is it, a piece of horse shit or something, or dog shit? (laughs) Yeah, it's horse shit. Uh, It's disgusting. Smell that shit, baby. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is the longest setup for a payoff in the history of film. (laughs) That is introduced in, like, you know, the first four minutes, and here it's paying off closer to hour two. Okay, so... So again, Dewey has reached the uh, end point, the golden years of his life. His life is almost over. He's like 70 now. And this is where his manager, like the nephew of his manager, comes up with a surprise. And they're like, you know, Dewey, they're doing a concert uh, coming up in a couple weeks, and they want you to perform. It's like a Lifetime Achievement Award on, like, VH1. And he's like, ah, nobody wants to hear from me. I'm just an old chunk of coal. I had a song 40 years ago. (laughs) I don't know if I can rock. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, no, Dewey, you don't understand. And so they, like... uh, pull out of a youtube video and there's like a a rap song and who who's the rapper that sings it's like a famous rapper uh yeah so this is little nutsack so can you imagine cox and little nutsack what a package (laughs) yeah but there's a little mashup it's like one of these things when they would mash up a classic rock song with a rap song and uh this is like one of the big hit songs of the era and dewey had no idea that all the kids nowadays know his song yeah, this is straight out. This is, you know, straight ripped off of Gold Digger, I think, uh, uh, with Ray Charles being used. Uh, I think it's a, a Puff Daddy song. But yeah, I, I forgot that this happened until I rewatched this movie. This is so strange to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the ending, you think where the movie ends isn't where it actually ends. There's about 10 minutes more, which we're going to go into real quick here, where there's a uh, reunion concert. It's like a lifetime achievement for Dewey, and he's supposed to go sing for the first time in 25 years, and they want him to sing Walk Hard, and he's like, I don't want to do it. The temptations, there's too many temptations. I don't want to be faced with them again, which is a wonderful setup for a payoff coming up here that I always forget is coming. 
Yes. Uh, but uh, first, uh, Dewey has to, you know, take account of his entire life. He goes into his dressing room and he has a heart to heart with his own reflection. And then the ghost of his father reappears, the ghost of Nate, his ma. And then in the most WTF of sight gags, uh, his feminine side, which is just John C. Riley in drag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Dewey is getting ready for this final concert and all these women be it backstage or throwing themselves at him. These women that are like 40 years younger than him. And he's like, no, I, I'm going to go home after the concert and I'm going to go with my wife and my kids. And I, I will say no to the temptations. I cannot face them. And it's uh -huh. like, all right, good for Dewey. And Vic, what, about, what do we immediately cut to behind the scenes where he's faced with? It's the temptations <laughs> singing my girl. <laughs> Dewey sees the literal temptations group and he screams he's like, ah. <laughs> the temptation <laughs> that is such a stupid joke but it works and i don't know how it works but you don't see it coming and it's so dumb but it just it somehow makes you laugh I'm realizing that Walk Hard really is a comedy of excess. One of my favorite things I always draw on is when Conan O'Brien was being taken off The Tonight Show, uh, he started doing bits that were not so funny as they were clearly expensive. And again, this is funny because they had to pay all whatever 12 temptations to come for a second just so we could have that pun. <laughs> well, I'm surprised they didn't have like Justin Long and Justin Bieber playing The Temptations. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, when we get to the, the, the modern day, this is, these are real people playing themselves. Uh, before we get to the concert, we do have a payoff for, uh, Dewey's drug addiction. Uh, we walk in on Sam and he's doing some new shit. It's Viagra. It gives you a boner. Of course, this is the thing finally Dewey turns down. <laughs> Dewey's like, no, I, I will turn that down. I do not want any part of this. And Sam's like, did you understand me? It gives you a boner. <laughs> no, I cannot do that. No, the temptations are too strong. So, we come out here, uh, uh, we have an all-star version of Walk Hard. Again, this is just so cool. Jewel, Jackson Brown, uh, uh, Lyle Lovett, and Ghostface Killer cover Walk Hard. A fictional song made for this movie. Yeah, and they look like they're having fun singing it. Especially Jewel's got like a little smirk on her face, like she gets the joke here. <laughs> and then we get to the point where Ghostface Killer is rapping, and Jewel is the underscore as she yodels. I mean, this really is next-level stuff. <laughs> All right, so here we go. So the end of the movie, Dewey finally takes the stage, and uh, this is, again, his first time on stage in 25 years, and he sings this new original composition he has come up with called It's a Beautiful Ride, which is basically about his life and what he's learned and his perspective and all about how all you need is love and family and friends, and there's a... Uh... Traveling not just for business. Yeah, well, there's a line, he says, make a little music every day until you die. And again, it's a yeah. wonderful scene capped off by the fact that when they flash back to all the wonderful things in his life they show the penis <laughs> among many things oh god they're so funny we cut back to uh chris parnell and dewey apparently getting in some kind of gunfight chris parnell is shot to death in the memory <laughs> and we see machetes i know there's machete action going on here again there's all yes. well paul is cut in half they play the ukulele together <laughs> Yeah, so oh, so at the end of the movie and Dewey plays this big tribute and everyone cheers and it's like he has finally made peace with life. He has made peace with everything. He has found his place in the world. And then three minutes later, he dies. And we see a, <laughs> like a flashback of him dying. They cut to his, him holding his chest and he dies. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> the end of the movie um uh uh this is uh, that's that's how it is it is a true cradle to grave uh story this is the complete biopic um i can't go over how uh, the song beautiful ride is just funny enough to be a comedy song but i'd say it's 90 percent an authentic you know uh, ode to making art and and music i mean it's it's very sweet. The funny comes from the montage. And again, 
I'm keen on hyperbole, Mario, but I would say this is maybe the funniest montage in, in comedy. Hmm. I I would have to think about that one. I, the one thing that jumped out of my mind is that these over the years, these comedies that I find really special and hold a certain place in my heart are the ones that have like a really good soundtrack that are like legitimately good songs besides being funny. I'm going to say name three of them right here. Walk Hard has a really good soundtrack with like professional, really good songs. The South Park movie, I was always the biggest <laughs> fan of that because like Trey Parker can freaking write good songs. Those are yeah. great songs. And then the other one I was going to name is Pop Star, the uh, Andy Samberg one, because right. there's some great songs in that one too, like legitimately catchy hit songs. So I, there's a certain place in my heart, a special place for movies that can pull that off. There's a lifetime of uh, the question of why do comedians want to be musicians so badly? You know, the Blues Brothers is a favorite of mine. This is Spinal Tap, Tenacious D. For whatever reason, the greatest compliment uh, for a comedian can be you're also a good singer. Uh, so this follows in that tradition. But yeah, the music is killer. Another great one is uh, Get Em to the Greek, another Apatow joint. A lot mm -hmm. of the songwriters write both of these with uh, Russell Brand and Jonah Hill. Great music. Yeah, and just again, overall, this is one of the... I think top comedies of my lifetime, not even just over since 2000. Like this is just a wonderful, such a, so many good things going on, so many subtle things going on. And then you got the music humor in there. There's inside references to Brian Wilson. There's like a Jim Morrison stuff. You got the Charles Manson line. You got the, you know, the, the Bob Dylan stuff. Just so many different things for so many different people in this movie that the fact that, like, this is a movie that should appeal to everyone. And the fact that nobody saw it is just, it's the, one of the great ironies of how comedies work sometimes. Yeah. And another great gag is uh, the fact that this movie is so innovative. You know, we live in the era of the Marvel movies and the post-credit sequences being so important. Well, I'd say Walk Hard is one of the post best post-credit sequences of all time. Uh, if you stick around to the end of the movie, Mar, I don't know if you've done this, but <laughs> you can see footage of the actual Dewey Cox. <laughs> <laughs> what? I've never seen that. I never stayed to the end. Oh, you got to stay to the end. If you stick around after the credits, you see footage from 2002, black and white, grainy an old man who looks a lot like John C. Riley plays walk hard in a much gravelier voice. Uh, again, parodying another trope of the biopic that we cut, we see images of the real person. Uh, the fact that they create a real Dewey Cox uh, for a fictional Dewey Cox is just another stroke of brilliance. So funny. That is fantastic. I actually have to go immediately after this podcast. I'm going to go watch that because I want to see that. And I want to see if they actually have him saying, hi, I'm Dewey Cox. <laughs> Yes, this Dewey Cox is from Liverpool. They changed a couple of things. <laughs> yeah, again, this is just a such a fun movie to talk about, and I really hope we did it justice. And like I said, this easily could have been the first episode of Staff Fix because it's one that I've had my name linked to for so many years. So I just, mm -hmm. I I'm so glad I found the uh, perfect co-host to come on, and I'm glad we finally got to do a show where you're you're not just sitting there waiting for me to talk for four hours. So. I'm glad you had a chance to participate. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Uh, uh, you know, I, I feel very humbled. I know this uh, this DVD cover was in the staff picks, you know, uh, cover photo. So I knew you were going to get around to it at some point. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be one of the guys that gets to steward this great comedy. Um, it's so funny for me because, Mari, I'm a writer, and I'm sure you have this too. But uh, this this came to me at such an influential time when I was just beginning to write my own plays. And it's so funny that I can hear echoes of my own work in this movie. Clearly, it was so influential that things just seep into my brain. And I think that's what great comedies can do for people, is they can really shape the way you present yourself, uh, how you think through comedy. And Walk Hard, for me, is certainly one of those movies. Is that because most of your plays end with uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon in a slap fight? Yes, exactly. And of course, all my plays have gratuitous nudity. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. It's in the uh, the Vic Shati uh, contract writer. All plays must have a dick shot. <laughs> oh yeah, and there's no there's no editing that in the live theater. <laughs> okay, so uh, um, how can people want to how can people reach you if you have uh, what other works? I know uh, give people a way to find your uh, daily show podcast if they could. All right, so yes, uh, Hail Satire is my umbrella podcast that includes all my interviews with uh, famous people, uh, comedians, stand-ups, writers. Uh, uh, you can get those at hailsatire.com, also on iTunes. Uh, the Daily Show Weekly is the same website. You can also go to thedailyshowweekly.com. We are up through the year 2001. So we've done three complete years of John Stewart. We do we watch two weeks of the uh, the television series uh, at a time. Um, and so we've released those every week. We're we're really plowing through the John Stewart era. We've already gotten past 9-11, so that's a big benchmark. We're already getting into the political era. One time, Mario, I want to have you on The Daily Show, Willie, to talk fondly of the Craig Kilborn years, because that is a black hole in the uh, the modern age. You can't find any clips from that show online. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up, because I wanted to clarify what we talked about earlier in the podcast when, when Vic said that I, I – d- d- for him saying that John Stewart Daily Show is one of the greatest things ever and how I may have an issue with that. Yeah, the reason why is because I was raised on the Craig Kilborn Daily Show. Craig Kilborn was one of my absolute favorite comedians ever. He was a big, formative uh, name in my youth coming up through college and high school when he was on SportsCenter. He was the funniest anchor, and that was like the biggest show in the world. So when he got his own comedy show, he went to Comedy Central. They wrote the Daily Show for him. That was a vehicle for Kilborn. Right. And so I watched all those, and I still have all three years I think of that on tape every episode on VHS somewhere and then when he left and they gave it to this other guy John Stewart I just I would not accept it because that's Craig <laughs> Kilborn's show so I have a totally different view of the Daily Show than most other people do I know Mario me and you we need to do like some kind of comedy road trip we can listen to all these David Letterman tapes you have I, I would love to see a lot of this great you know digitize these Kilborn tapes and send me uh send me a package or something I would love to watch them at some point but uh uh yeah this is uh it's been a really fun experience I'm not gonna lie the early uh, eras of the John Stewart Daily Show appear to be a pretty pale imitation of what was this mountain of Craig Kilborn uh something that also uh, uh your friend and mine Rob Sesternino loves that era of the show um, and Wait, he so, loves uh, he loved Kilborn. He loved Kilborn. He, ah. well, when I mentioned John Stewart, he goes, "Yeah, I was a Kilborn guy." I'm like, guys, yes. yes. What am I missing here? <laughs> All right, I knew I liked that guy, Sester. You know, you're okay in my book. <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, uh, the uh, the first couple years they're tough, but uh, by 2001, we're really starting to get into the political scape, and obviously very influential for comedy today. I'd love to pick your brain as far as what you think of, because I imagine you're not a super political comedy guy, and that is, uh, you know, just inundated every form of comedy in this modern era. Yeah, let's save that for your show. I'm not sure that's really a staff picks topic, but sometime we'll we'll get into my Norm Macdonald theory of comedy, which basically is don't watch the news ever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but uh, you can keep up with the show at those websites. You can also follow me on Twitter at Vic Shati, S-H-U-T-T-E-E. Uh, you know, I know you got an R-hat bump, but I'm looking for a staff picks bump over here, Mario. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so all my listeners, I you know, I get upwards of 100, 150 listeners. So all of you rush over to uh, Hail Satire. Oh, very good. Well, Mario, this is such a pleasure. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on here. And, uh, you know, Borat can't come soon enough. (laughs) See, this is why it's fun to uh, have someone who has their own podcast as a guest on Staff Picks. Vic is actually wrapping up the show as if he's the host here. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, I, ap- I apologize. I'm on I'm on the lands of turf. I don't want to get in anybody's way. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I will do the wrap-up here. But again, thank you again, Vic. This is a uh, pleasure. And I will be sure to have you back for uh, Borak, because that's one we're both looking forward to. And again, this is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. You can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there looking for more underrated, underloved, and underappreciated movies, and I'll find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. Talk to you guys later. Bye. This was a particularly bad case of somebody being cut in half. I was not able to reattach the top half of his body to the bottom half of his body. Speak English, Doc. We ain't scientists.